Well, thank you, uh, Paul, very much for a very warm welcome. It really has been great uh, to be with you all and to see Paul again, someone I admire in the Gospel. It's great to have uh, been with him these last couple of days. Now, let's just uh, talk about all this mission stuff. Uh, Let's be honest just for a moment, just you and me, okay? The staff, they get paid to tell you to come to carol services and bring all your friends along to Passion for Life and talk about Jesus, blah, 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 blah. I mean, they they do, don't they? I mean, you expect them to do that. You come to church, they stand at the front of church and they're always going to give you, you know, invite people, talk to people about Jesus and so on. They do that all the time. Good for them. That's their job. But um, in your heart and in your mind, I know what it's like, you sit there thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. But whether we will actually, you know, get around to doing anything about it is another thing. I mean, life is busy. There is lots on. Christmas is frantically busy, isn't it? And um, inviting people to things is, you know, after a while you've invited some of the, you know, your best friends and so on. And, and sometimes it gets difficult to keep going because, you know, they don't want you to go on at them the whole time. I, I'm reading the Bible at the moment with a... Um, He's a drummer of a rock band and he's touring around the world all the time and he's hardly ever here. And it's really disappointing. I, you know, I meet with him, he's really keen and then he heads off again and I don't see him for a few months. And, and after a while, I, I think to myself, why don't I just give up? Why bother? It's just so disappointing all the time. And I know you're all thinking the same thing. I mean, we all nod at church. Yeah, yeah, great, five carol services, can't wait. You know, passion for life next year, yahoo, yeah! And you go home and think, forget that. You know, in your heart you're thinking, why bother? Why bother? The truth is that in our hearts we often lack passion to uh, speak for Christ. Where are we going to get the kind of energy? Where are we going to get the, the drive to have another go? Perhaps to get started? To start talking to people about Jesus or invite them along to hear someone else talking about Jesus? Because in our hearts we're weary and we lack energy. Am I right? Yeah. When God um, called Isaiah to be a prophet for him and commissioned him to the work of speaking his message, the way he got Isaiah going was to give him a vision of himself. to show him what God is really like. And it's recorded here so that we can see that vision too. You see, it all begins with God and when you meet God, as we're about to do, in his awesome glory, he will change your feelings and your behaviour. This is a powerful passage. Why don't we just quickly pray that God will help us to understand it. Let's pray. Dear God, whether we're very new to Christian things and perhaps a bit confused and sceptical or whether we're very familiar with them and perhaps know this passage, we pray that now as we look at it that you would show us yourself and that your spirit would speak through your word and help us not only to understand it but to be and to feel different and ready to serve you. 
We ask it for your glory. Amen. Okay, well, the vision has four stages to it. The first one, it's all very simple. I've put an outline on the sheet for you to follow where we're going. And the first is the longest, and it's the most important. And it all begins with a renewed sense of God's holiness in verses 1 to 4. So read with me uh, in the Bible passage, if you've got it in front of you. We're just going to work through it. It's very simple. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Well, we know the year was 740 BC. The great Jewish king Uzziah had died. It was the end of an era. People uh, were worried about the future. I mean, you know, what's going to happen? And as Uzziah is in the temple, um, he's given a vision of God. And the human king may have died, but everything's okay because the king of kings is reigning on his throne. And when you look at this um, vision of him, you find, verse 1, he's seated on a throne. So imagine a big throne, and he's seated on it. And this king rules the entire universe with absolute power. Notice he's, he's not struggling, he's not fighting, he's not, you know, he's not um, sitting there anxious and wringing his hands in worry. It's not like he's worried about what Satan's doing in his world because he's got Satan well, well chained. And he's just sitting in total power. He's not asleep, though. He's ruling with absolute unchallenged, unrivaled, total supremacy. He sits on the throne and governs the universe. And he's splendid and majestic and glorious. Look, verse uh, 1, he's high and exalted. So he's up, he's lifted up, and he's surrounded with majestic splendor. He looks splendid. And he's huge. Just the train of his robes, the cloak, fills the temple. I'm not sure how big it was. 30 metres high, something like that. It's a big temple space. And even when he's seated, his robe fills the whole space. He's huge. And of course, it's, it's symbolic of the fact that God is so big that the universe of you know, trillion, trillion stars is like a, like a thimble trying to hold the Niagara Falls. I mean, God is so big. He's the supreme being. He's beyond the universe. He's bigger than we can possibly imagine. And he's surrounded by these amazing creatures, verse 2. Above him were seraphs, literally burning ones. So these, these beings, these weird creatures in his presence, there's a whole army of them, and they're actually kind of spontaneously combusting. They're, they're, in fla- they're aflame. Presumably with the holiness of the God in whose presence they, they live. And there they are, just flaming, burning away. And these extraordinary, this army of extraordinary creatures, they've got wings, and with two wings, we find, they are covering their faces. Because um, out of reverent fear, you can't look at, you can't stare at God. You know, you just get frazzled up. I mean, you can't stare at him. So they, they, they um, hide their, their eyes in fear of him. And they cover, the, with two wings, they're covering their feet, which is a Hebrew way of shame. So even though they're aflame with holiness, in the presence of this mighty God, they're covering their feet in shame. And with two, they're flying, they're, they're, they're independent, they're hovering, awaiting to do whatever the Lord wants them to do. So there's this army of flaming creatures in the presence of God. And it's not quiet, because to them, this God, in fact, this God, to Isaiah too, this God is so amazing that they just can't help it. They burst forth with praise. They can't, they can't help it, they're just singing. 
It's like a crowd at Wembley, you know, Rooney scores a goal. You know, it's not like that. It's, yeah! People are cheering, praising. And they're praising their God. And, and look at what they're saying, verse 3. They're calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, to be in the presence of God, he's, he's breathtakingly magnificent. And so they burst forth with song. Holy, holy, holy is the Hebrew way of saying holiness, holy, holiest. That there's, um, he's unique. There's no one like this. There's no one remotely close to this. He's on his own. They've never seen anybody or anything like this God. And uh, they say the whole earth is full of his glory. You know, you just look at the, uh, at the glory uh, of the, the creation. You look at the uh, mighty oceans and you look at the Niagara Falls. You, you look at the snow-capped Himalayas and you look at teeming cities and, and all that um, these uh, creatures called people have, have made. And um, you look at the sweltering jungles and you look at the star-filled skies and the little bits of DIY that God has put together in his spare time. It's just, just extraordinary, the power and creativity of God. And they're not restrained. You know, there's nothing kind of dirgy about this. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook. The temple was filled with smoke. I don't know whether you've been in a sort of loud... I've been in the Millennium Stadium in Wales when, uh, you know, Wales were about to smash England to bits. And you know how it is for the Welsh. I'm married to one, you know. You know, it's the most important moment in their lives when England come to town to get beaten. You know, and they're just singing their hearts out. And the place is, you know, filled with their noises, you know, and, and it fills your bones with the passion of the Welsh crowds. Kill them! You know, it's just kind of overwhelming. Or I've been at Wembley Stadium when um, Rolling Stones were playing. I mean, some of you don't know who the Rolling Stones were. They were, they were a pop band a few years ago. And, um, you know, it was right down near the front when Brown Sugar was playing. You know, I mean, the whole place was rocking. It was great. Or at the Bernabeu. I went to the Bernabeu Stadium once in uh, Barcelona and uh, Real Madrid were playing Barcelona. You know, 100,000 mad screaming fans. It was loud. But nothing like this. This was so loud. So loud that the very foundations are shaking. The whole, the whole temple is just shaking with the volume. This is just overwhelming. Every sense. And there's this smoke, presumably from the altars, that forms a kind of protective cloud, like the Shekinah cloud of the Old Testament, protecting people from the presence of God. And the point is, you see, that God is so wonderful, so amazing, so frighteningly holy, that the crowds in his presence, this army of beings is overwhelmed by him. Unless you think that this is just some kind of Old Testament picture. You get to the end of the Bible, to Revelation 4, and do you know they're still singing it? They haven't finished the chorus yet. And they're still singing the same words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He's so amazing that people don't want to stop singing. Even more amazing still, in John chapter 12, verse 42, Isaiah quotes from this passage and he says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory. So this is something of the glory of the Lord Jesus. Before he took flesh, so before he became an ordinary man, it's the glory that God the Son enjoyed beforehand and it's the glory to which he has returned and more yet. This is what Jesus is like. You see, the first stage in becoming useful to God 
in speaking about God to other people is to grasp something, just something of how holy he is. And there's two parts to that. One is how frightening, how terrible, how dreadful to arrive in the presence of that God as his enemy. To stand before him shaking a puny fist and saying, you know, I don't believe in you. I think you're wrong. I mean, how pathetic, how dreadful. And having spent a life of host- being hostile towards him, to then find yourself thrown out into the everlasting agony that Jesus described as, as being like in isolated darkness forever or you know, being roasted alive forever. The dreadful eternity of having nothing of God. How dreadful to front up before this God unforgiven. But how wonderful, wonderful, how wonderful to arrive forgiven. For make no mistake, you see, those who are there in his presence can't help it. He's just so glorious and enjoyable. You have to change the metaphor. Imagine a Michael McIntyre concert, you know, where people are just laughing, so much joy. Well, forget that. In God's presence, they just can't stop singing. He's so wonderful. Now, when confronted with the awesome holiness of God, Isaiah is then overcome with a new realisation. So, secondly, with a renewed sense of sinfulness. See, once you have a new sense of his holiness, how extraordinarily holy he is, then you'll be ready to understand how sinful you really are. She compared with such beautiful purity, Isaiah is engulfed by a chilling fear. Verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. Oh no, I'm ruined. He cries out in the horror of realising that his life has just collapsed. His whole life is like the rubble of a house blown up by a bomb. He's just been exploded by facing God. And it may be that this morning some of us think, you know, the world makes us feel like we are something. Uh, You know, it'd be different things for different people. Maybe you've built up a a business. Perhaps you employ people and you feel, you know, I've done something worth something in life. Maybe there's some achievements. Maybe you have a title. Maybe you're a a partner. Maybe you are the the director of this department or, or whatever it is. Maybe you've raised children. And uh, maybe, you know, you're a mother. Maybe they've grown up. Maybe they've left home. And you feel, I've achieved something of enormous value in life. Maybe you're even a grandmother. Perhaps even a great-grandmother. And you think, I have done something with my life. And Isaiah stands before this God and everything just collapses. And he says to himself, Oh, no. Oh, no. I've got nothing. I've got absolutely nothing to impress God with. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, I'm filthy. I can't speak for God. My lips are filthy. They're corrupted by selfishness and dishonesty. And I can't improve, I couldn't take lessons in being good enough because I live among the people of unclean lips. Actually, we're all the same. You see this God and you suddenly realise what the problem with the human race is. None of us have got a chance here. Have you seen what God is like? I mean, what hope have we got standing before him? We are unclean, we are filthy. 
And he says, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And now he knows. All our hopes of being good enough are just stupid. Have you seen what God is like? And I don't want to be negative about that. You know, I, was, I was reading the Bible with a guy this week because um, he used to be the partner in the law firm I used to work in many years ago. And he's a lovely guy and he came out with that phrase that people so often do. You know, he said, well, I've tried to live my life according to you know, some principles, you know. And I sort of smiled. And I don't mean to be negative about that because it's good to live by good principles. But I thought to myself, have you seen what God is like? You know, um, I tried to be kind to my children and provide for them. And um, um, I did get involved. You know, I went to church a bit and I prayed quite a lot. Um, Have you seen what he's like yet? Once you've seen what God is like, you realise that we're all a million miles from being good enough. I mean, who are we kidding? I mean, you've got to survive, haven't you? you got, otherwise, you just despair and give up and lie down and die. So you kind of think, you know, I try my best, I do, I do what I can, and people do that all the time. They say to themselves, I hope it's enough. And you think about meeting God, you think, oh no, that could be scary. So I try not to think about it. But when you actually look at him, you realise we're in serious trouble. And I don't know whether you've ever felt what it's like. You know, when something goes across your head and you suddenly think, Oh no, oh no. You, you know, it's like um, when you, you've come away from the weekend and you suddenly realise you were supposed to submit some vital project at work, you know, some report, something like that, you know, and your whole appraisal depended on it. And you think, oh no, oh no, I haven't done it. Oh no. Or maybe something much worse. Oh no, she's going to leave me. And that's what happens to Isaiah. He stands before God and he says, Oh no, I'm totally stuffed here. A renewed sense of our sinfulness. I remember this uh, experience myself. I remember playing um, rugby for a university team some years ago and uh, the captain asked me to come along for pre-season training and we gathered and suddenly realised a whole load of these huge blokes had arrived from across, across the world to come and play for the university. And um, the captain went round interviewing the, uh, uh, talking to the people. He said, oh, this is Simon Edgerton. He plays for Australia at fullback. And uh, this is um, somebody, McDonald. He plays second row for South Africa. Uh, this is um, such and such. He plays in the wing for Canada. And this is such and such. He plays in the centre for Wales. And this is Richard. There's a long pause. <laughs> He's here for the experience. <laughs> you know, I, th- I thought to myself, this isn't going to last long. I don't belong here. And it didn't last long. It lasted about two weeks and I was out. Don't really matter that, does it? But um, you don't want to arrive before God like that, do you? Renewed sense of our sinfulness. Well, that led to a renewed sense of God's grace, verses 6 to 7. You see, God showed him firstly, gave him a new sense of his holiness. That then led to a new sense of sinfulness. And now he's ready for a new sense of God's grace. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now imagine this for a moment, okay? There you are, look at this amazing thing. Suddenly your heart sinks into your boots. Oh no, I'm ruined. And then one of the creatures, the fiery creatures, peels off from the army, comes streaming down towards you, grabs a coal, you know, a hot coal off the altar, and then comes straight for you. I mean, you know, you're, you're done for now. This is it. And then, with it, he touched my mouth. 
exactly the point where Isaiah was most aware of his filthiness and corruption. Like, just touched it. And then he explained, verse 7, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, the sacrifice was being applied to his sin, like ointment to a sore. You see, the sacrifices in the temple, they were only ever pictures. I mean, all that hacking up of animals all over the centuries, they were all pictures of the future. They were pictures of what Jesus would do when he died on the cross, when he shed his blood on the cross. And if you didn't understand that, that is why God became flesh. So many people struggle with this. Why on earth would that supreme being, that that great God, why on earth would he shrink himself down to become some ordinary bloke walking around Palestine in the first century? It's so bizarre, it's absurd, it's so humiliating. Why would God do that? And the reason God became a little worm on this planet is in order to swap places with the other worms on this planet when he died on the cross. And the reason is, and I can't quite explain it, is that God apparently loves us so much, so much he loves us, that he took flesh and came to die in agony on a cross and there to suffer what we deserve so that we will never have to suffer it ourselves as soon as we turn to him. Isn't that magnificent? I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, a Christian is someone who's overwhelmed by that. I don't know whether you remember the, the Falkland Islands War a few years ago now. Um, I don't know whether you remember that what happened was Exocet missiles destroyed the ships full of um, helicopters. And so there was no way for the troops to get across the island to Port Stanley. And so do you remember that uh, overnight they yomped across the, the, um, the island. It was a famous uh, yomp, an extraordinary feat, where fully kitted out, uh, basically the soldiers walked all the kit across the island uh, to capture Port Stanley. But on the way... Um, the, the parachute regiment, the marines and everyone who, who were involved um, they, part of the exercise was that there was a, a, a gun post at the top of a hill and they couldn't get past it and uh, I think it was two, maybe three parachute trapped on the side of, the, of Mount Longdon and uh, one of the sergeants Sergeant Ian Mackay did some extra, something extraordinary for which he was awarded the Victoria Cross you know what he did? He, he jumped up, threw away his rifle pulled two grenades off his chest webbing pulled the pins charged up the hill and jumped into the machine gun post and blew it up. Now imagine if you had been in the platoon on the side of the hill, and I've never been in warfare, I don't know what it's like, but you know, imagine, imagine you know, the, all the, the, the chaos, chaos, you know, explosions, deafening explosions, shrapnel, um, screams, shouting, smoke, mayhem. And what, you, know, you realise that as you're lying there on the side of the hill and people are getting uh, shot, and then Mackay, you watch Mackay jump up and throw away his rifle, grenades, pins, ah, charging up the hill. Bang! Massive explosion. And then it echoes across the hills and silence descends on the hill and it suddenly dawns on you what he's just done. He's just died for me. Now, I don't care too much about Mackay because he didn't die for me. But I do care about Jesus because he did die for me. And a Christian is someone who realises that God took flesh to become an ordinary guy called Jesus so that he could die in dreadful agony on a cross. 
and there take the blast that we deserve so that we don't have to take it ourselves. Do you know why? Because he loves you. And he loves me too. And the day you realise that, your life will change. And the effect of this sacrifice, and that's what that, that, see that sacrifice in the temple is always illustrating Jesus dying on a cross for us. Two effects, look at them. Your guilt is taken away. That is, the record of our sins has been removed. So in the big computer in heaven, there's some angel in there, doesn't do anything else, just sits there all the time, there's so many people, he's got one job. You see, and when you turn to Jesus Christ, when you turn to Christ, and you say, for me too please, please forgive me. He goes up to your file, strolls through, gets to your name, Kokin. It's a big file full of sins. And he goes, presses the delete button. And it's gone. Gone. Utterly gone. Wiped away forever. Isn't that brilliant? Everything we've ever done wrong, everything we will ever do wrong, deleted. And, moreover, the the seraph says, your sin is atoned for. That means God is satisfied. He's not angry with us anymore. You see, what happens, the great thing is, when Jesus swapped places with us, not only is it that he got treated as if he was us and was punished on the cross with the hell we deserve, he got it all on the cross. He was treated as if if he was us so that we can be treated as if we were him. And so we're accepted into his presence as his children. Like the Son of God, we're treated as if we were Jesus. We're welcome in his presence. See, when you become a Christian, it's like, not only do you come into his presence and you live there like the seraphs, better than the seraphs, you can climb on his knee and have a hug. How good is that? You'll find a lot of other people there as well, but we're all having a hug. Because this great God is now our Father, because we're treated as if we were Jesus. How good is that? Your guilt taken away and now your sin atoned for and God's not angry with you anymore. You're welcome to come up and have a cuddle on his knee. This is what Christians call the grace of God. The undeserved kindness. We don't deserve any of this. He's just done it for us. He's just done it for us. But it's so wonderful that Isaiah is changed. So meeting God in his holiness and then realising his sinfulness and then experiencing his grace, now he has a new sense, a renewed sense of obedience. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying... So, I mean, you've got to ask the question, is it, what does God talk about? I mean, he's there for a long time. Uh, what are you talking about? If you're God, you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in this extraordinary, mysterious, divine, holy relationship, what do they talk about? What really matters to God? I mean, you know, the whole universe to talk about and all the other things he's planning. What does God talk about? What's the most important, what's on his mind, you ask? Verse 8, I, I overheard the voice of the Lord. He was saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who will reach, who will go and speak for us? Who will go and reach people? Who will tell people about us? Striking, isn't it, the the plural there? 
God, plural. Father, Son and Spirit. Who will go? And Isaiah is so overwhelmed by the grace of God, he says, could I go? I'd love to go. Here I am. Will you send me? And what does God say, verse 9? You'll do fine. You'll do fine. Go and tell this people. God was willing to use this forgiven sinner to take his message to Israel. Yes, it begins as a message of judgment, but it ends with the message of a saviour. And many years later, Jesus said something similar when he said, Go, you go, and make disciples of all nations. And he too, you see, is willing to use forgiven sinners like you and me, people who understand and rejoice in his grace. And as Isaiah was obedient to God, so we are permitted to obey this command and go and make disciples of all nations. Do you see the four stages to his commissioning? And it's the four stages we need. If this morning you arrived here thinking, yeah, 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 blah, 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 all this mission stuff, very good. And you didn't really think in your heart that you wanted to obey God. Well, you need to go back to the beginning. It all begins with God. Do you see how holy and magnificent he is? How frightening to be on the wrong end of him? How wonderful to be accepted onto his knee? Do you see what God is like? Now do you see how dreadful your sin is? How God should send you to hell forever for the way you've treated him? Now do you understand how marvellous his grace is that he should have sent his beloved son to suffer for you on a cross that you can be forgiven forever? And now are you ready? Yeah, I'll go now. I'd like to go. Please send me. truth is if you don't yet feel like obeying God you need, a free, you need to know his grace to know his grace you need to know your sin to know your sin you need to go back to God and have another look at him mission begins with God but if you have understood his holiness your sin, his grace then go go and invite your neighbours to Christmas carol services so that Paul has to arrange not four but five or six of them because there are so many go, just go and ask them and then do the same for March next year, Passion for Life. Ask everybody. If they say no, so I can do about it. But keep going. Have another go. Go. Go and talk to your neighbours in the street. Just go around. Go and knock, knock on the door. Haven't seen you for a while. Have coffee. Go. Go to your neighbour in the office. Thought we'd have lunch. Thought we'd have coffee. Go. Go to this city. Be part of the next church plant. You go. Put your hand up and say, here I am, here I am. Send me. Let's bow our heads and pray together. A moment of quiet. If you've seen this morning what God is like, why don't you respond to him now? Dear God, thank you for showing us something of your glory and holiness. 
Please forgive us where we've forgotten how marvellous, how holy you really are. Father, we ask that you would help us to remember how holy you are and in the light of your holiness to remember how sinful we are. And as we realise that we are ruined without you, to understand how marvellous the sacrifice of Jesus is for our sins, how wonderful your gracious kindness has been to us. And reminded of your grace, we want to put our hands up and say, here we are, would you send us? And we ask it for your glory. Amen.